Good morning, everybody. This morning we have a special welcome to go out to our campers. All four districts of the Pacific Western region joined together this week for a virtual camp. And it's including middle schoolers and high schoolers from the entire Pacific Western region. And so we wanna welcome all of you and all of your campers to joining us uh, in worship this morning. We only wish that you were here in person. And if you were, we would serve s'mores in your honor. So welcome. Welcome everybody. I wanna thank uh, Alex Starr for joining me this morning. He's our worship associate, Carmen Barsity is sick, but for reasons that you will hear later, it's particularly appropriate to have Alex read her reflection this morning. And also it's a chance for us to recognize, and for those of you who don't know Alex, to see him. Alex is the host of our coffee hour, our virtual coffee hour, which campers, I hope you'll join us too, which he started of his own sort of initiative immediately after the stay at home. And so we have Alex to thank for that opportunity for us to gather after worship together, which has been a way for people to, I think, meet a different group of people than they might normally at coffee hour. So it's been wonderful on a lot of levels. And I feel grateful for having him here with me today. I wanna thank all of our people who are helping worship happen. The list is long and some familiar. Eric Shackelford on camera and Jonathan Silk, who is doing all of our AV setup and playing drums today, as he does sometimes for us. Joe Chappos handling our social media and chat and answering your questions if you're having a hard time getting connected. Roberto Delau and Thomas, who's also back, helping open our building along with Dan Bernard, our new facilities manager for whom we are deeply grateful. Reiko Odelaine, as you saw from the Reiko cam that's been on the last couple of weeks, is back in her seat in the loft. Joyce Lee is our guest flautist. Miwa Steger accompanying us, and Ben and Asher are leading us in song. We're deeply grateful for all of them and for all of you. The order of worship, if you don't already know, if you're joining us for the first time, is something you can download and probably should, particularly this week, because as you'll see later, you'll really want to have a chance to look at it, at least be able to flip to it on your screen. So take a moment to download it. I want to thank Amy Kelly, too, for our gorgeous flowers last week and this week. Our opening words this morning are from poet Annie Dillard writer, fiction writer too, she writes, we are here to abet creation and to witness to it, to notice each other's beautiful face and complex nature so that creation need not play to an empty house. This morning I take that creation not playing to an empty house, not just meaning here as it normally does when we say these words, but that our lives on this planet never need play out in an empty house. So in the service and honor of the theme of witness, we gather. I'm gonna light our candle as we have been each week in honor of all of you, bringing you into this space in spirit until we can join together 
in body here. And so we begin worship. you now to please join me in reciting and if you have a candle at hand in lighting our chalice we light this chalice for the light of truth the warmth of love and the fire of commitment we light this symbol of our faith as we gather together. Let's do as we do every week, our meditation on breathing to center ourselves for this hour. So the words are printed in your order of service. When I breathe in, I breathe in peace. When I breathe out, I breathe out love. When I breathe in, I'll I breathe, breathe in peace. When I breathe out, I'll breathe out love. When I breathe in, I'll breathe in peace. When I breathe out, I'll breathe out love. When I breathe in, 
Though you may be comfy seated in your chair in front of your computer or holding your device, maybe you're in bed watching the church service this morning, I invite you to rise as you're willing and able and join me in reciting the covenant of our congregation and then singing our doxology. Love is the spirit of this church and service is its prayer. This is our great covenant to dwell together in peace, to seek the truth in freedom and to help one another. Congregation Sabrina, just over a week ago, lost a close friend, Juliet. Juliet had fought mightily against skin cancer for years. She was in her 30s only, and left in her wake her loving husband and two-year-old daughter. I've asked Sabrina to come forward and light a candle on our altar for Juliet next to the photo of Juliet and her family. And we do so for the love for Juliet that's in this world, in honor of the light that she brought into this world, and that her family may forever be held in both that same love and light. Thank you. And we light it also knowing that there can be no funerals in these days, at least not the way we're used to it, these rituals of mourning. We light it knowing that we can't always feel safe flying to be with family and friends, or they might not be safe after our flight having us with them, and so these spaces for grief are constricted and strange. Knowing that we have family and friends and loved ones even now in hospitals and nursing homes that we cannot visit, So we hold and name the distinct pain and struggle of this time 
even beyond the fear of being sick, the complicated grief of this time, and the challenge to hold one another well and strong through it all. And so we begin our ritual of remembrance and commitment. Recognizing there is human suffering all over this world in the course of natural and human catastrophes, we ring our gong today in honor of three such places of suffering and struggle. We ring our gong first as we have since July in honor of the seven children who lost their lives in federal custody in our detention camps. And we let that ringing stand symbolically for all those adults who have lost their lives in these camps, those who remain in them. Many separated from their families and now at greater and greater risk of infection from COVID-19. We ring our gong additionally once for the losses this week to that same virus, 35,163 lives globally, 5,154 human beings in our nation alone. We hold in our hearts also all who continue to risk their lives to provide essential services, who suffer from loss of job, whose lives are especially vulnerable to this virus and its infection. And finally, all those whose isolation and struggle through grief and loneliness is harder the longer this goes on. Finally, we ring our gong once this week, naming the rise in xenophobia around this country and in our own Bay Area. We ring it naming another long-standing, dangerous, insidious, and too often accepted narrative of discrimination and hate in our nation. And all those we love who live in greater fear, danger, and spiritual and emotional trauma because of it. So much to remember and hold. May we keep those we have named in our thoughts and in our prayers. And may we ease the tide of human suffering this coming week, howsoever we can.
And now I invite us into a time of prayer and meditation. There is so much to hold in this world. In these days, it can be a lot, too much. May our breath Each breath, then, recall us to the renewable resources always around us. To renew spirit, to refresh mind, to restore our will. We breathe in peace. We breathe in life. We breathe in this day and all that is good. Breathe in with gratitude for this body that works well enough, well enough for us to be listening to this service. For the social fabric around us in which people still care for and tend to and hold one another. For all those around us who strive so hard to be good, who love so well and mend brokenness where they can. May we find all the reasons to celebrate the extraordinary ordinariness of this day. May we make time to care for our bodies and our spirits, O Spirit of life. Remember how little rest, how little renewal sometimes it takes. A cup of tea, a good laugh, or cry to make us feel reborn to strength and purpose. Give us space to renew. May we find and claim the ways that work in us in these times when there is so much to hold that is hard. Find ways that work for us to live with a little bit of that daily abandon to the sweetness of this day until the night hours call us to rest once more.
for these and all our blessings. We pray. Amen. my honor this morning to get to share a reflection written by Carmen Barsodi, one of the co-founders of the Faithful Fools. For those who don't know the Faithful Fools, they were founded in 1998 here in San Francisco's Tenderloin by Carmen, a Franciscan nun, and Reverend Kay Jorgensen, a Unitarian Universalist minister who together discovered their ministry in the streets of San Francisco. The Faithful Fools ministry is one of witnessing and presence. The core belief is that we discover on the streets our common humanity. The Fools work includes accompaniment, arts, advocacy, and other programming, both on the streets of the Tenderloin as well as in the Faithful Fools building in the Tenderloin, and places such as this church, the halls of City Hall. Um, we have discovered that 
These streets can be anywhere where we are, in our homes, our offices, and places all over the world, Nicaragua, Redwood City, Vancouver, and other streets where fools have done and continue to do their work. Uh, as I said, Kay and Carmen founded the Faithful Fools in 1998. Kay went on later to become a minister at this church as well, at which time I was given the opportunity, an invitation to join on one of the Faithful Fools street retreats, a simple invitation to come and join in witnessing that has changed my life more than almost any other invitation. Uh, for the past almost 20 years, I've worked with the Faithful Fools as a volunteer, sometimes in a professional capacity, and very glad to be able to present this here today on Carmen's behalf. Now, for those of you who don't know Carmen, I would like you to picture a smile as bright as the sun shining off of the ocean, on a face as soft as a redwood forest, all held up by the strength and steadiness of a mountain. Now that you've got Carmen's face pictured, I will share her reflection. It was an early morning in Nicaragua when I awoke, and as I walked out of my room, heading to the kitchen for coffee, I paused in the walkway and looked out into the barrio, the neighborhood in which we lived. My eyes fell on the barbed wire fences on the houses made of sheets of iron or slabs of wood and a few made of concrete blocks. I noticed the sounds of people who had already begun to start their day. I heard the rhythm of someone's hand making tortillas, pat, 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 pat. I could hear someone bathing, using a bowl to splash water from a plastic barrel they had filled a couple of nights ago when running water made one of its rare appearances, we were all accustomed to gathering and rationing water because we never knew when it would come through the pipes again. As I stood looking out, I began thinking of the ones who were working hard in sweatshops and in the markets, yet didn't have enough to eat. Some of the young people from our youth group were already feeling their bodies worn down from leaning over sewing machines all day. I found myself thinking of the many who were navigating the effects of trauma from years of war, often drinking to blur the memories. As my eyes and heart took in the scene, I heard a voice say inside me, I never want to wake up where this reality is not before me. Fast forward 23 years, and I awaken looking out the windows of the Fool's Court into the streets of the Tenderloin of San Francisco. I see tents zipped up as some people are still sleeping. I look across the street and see people laying on the sidewalk, unprotected by a tent or a blanket, while others lean against the building after being awake all night. I see parents holding the hands of their children as they navigate the crowded sidewalks. There are street cleaners rolling their big plastic cans down the sidewalk, 
helping to keep the neighborhood clean. A few people are wearing masks, but it takes a special effort to remember to do so. For most of our neighbors, the threat from this new virus is not much different than any of the other threats they and their parents and grandparents have lived with for decades. When Vanessa and I spoke about today's theme, the power of witnessing, she said, isn't that what the street retreats are all about? Her question reminded me of a foundational book for us faithful fools titled Bearing Witness by Bernie Glassman. It is a book we read together each year as we prepare for our seven-day street retreats. It is a book that Kay Jorgensen and I used when we taught the course the Crossroads of the Community and Parish at Star King School for the Ministry. The reason we call our founding action as fools a retreat, a street retreat, and not a tour, is that when I retreat, I go with an intention to look inside and out, to gain a little insight into myself and my life and ways. I retreat because I long for greater clarity and direction. I retreat with an intention to correct ways that are not helpful, or maybe even are destructive to me and to the community around me. I share with you a passage we often read from in Bearing Witness to begin a street retreat. Earlier, I quoted the famous Jewish prayer, Shema Israel. Listen, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Buddhist service that we perform on the streets of New York City's Bowery begins, attention, attention. When we say attention, what do we mean? When we really listen, when we really pay attention to the sounds of joy and suffering in the universe, then we are not separate from them we become them. Because in reality, we are not separate from those who suffer. We are them. They are us. It is our suffering, and it is our joy. When we don't listen, we are shutting ourselves off. Not from others, but from ourselves. We can't do any of this from a place of knowing. When we think we know something, we don't listen. We have to empty ourselves over and over, return to unknowing, and just listen. And listen. And when, once we listen, we have to act. The functioning that comes out of listening, out of attention, is compassionate action. If we don't listen, we can't act with compassion. So says Bernie Glassman. We see the decades of social and racial inequalities being laid bare in our streets and across the globe during this pandemic. It was an intentional choice for me and my Franciscan community to live in the marginalized barrios of Nicaragua. And it is an intentional choice for faithful fools to live in the Tenderloin District of San Francisco. I am there. We are there. We are here because we have a responsibility 
to bear witness and to act with compassion. Thank you, Carmen. And thank you, Alex. And so our offering will be given this morning to benefit the STOP AAPI Hate Reporting Center run by the Asian Pacific Policy and Planning Council. If you hit donate, if you give remote, um, <clears throat> virtually, remotely, you'll notice a set of options and just choose special offerings so it's clear you intended your gift toward this effort. Thank you in advance for your generous giving on behalf of this important work. Our reading this morning was one that we read at a poetry gathering that started in April, a program that we've continued. 
We did a few weeks, I think I mentioned once, on what's called ekphrastic poetry. That's our big word in the poetry group that we've learned. It means a work of poetry that's responding to a work of art or a piece of music. And our poem this morning, our reading, is just such a poem. Auden wrote it as a young man in 1938 during a time in Brussels in Belgium. There he had seen works of art at the Royal Museum of Fine Arts of Belgium. And those works he had seen included the fall of Icarus that's printed on your order of service cover. <clears throat> a painting credited to Bruegel, but actually we now know it's probably a copy of a lost work. But be that as it may, it was the composition that Auden was speaking and responding to and two others including the census in, at Bethlehem that's also in your order of service. And here's what he wrote. About suffering, they were never wrong, the old masters. How well they understood its human position, how it takes place while someone else is eating or opening a window or just walking dully along. How when the aged are reverently, passionately waiting for the miraculous birth, <clears throat> there must always be children who did not specially want it to happen, skating on a pond at the edge of the wood. They never forgot that even the dreadful martyrdom must run its course anyhow, somewhere in a corner, some untidy spot where the dogs go on with their doggy life and the torturer's horse scratches its innocent behind on a tree. In Bruegel's Icarus, for instance, how everything turns away quite leisurely from the disaster. The plowman may have heard the splash, the forsaken cry, but for him it was not an important failure. The sun shone as it had to <clears throat> onto the white legs disappearing into the green water and the expensive, delicate ship that must have seen something amazing, a boy falling from the sky, had somewhere to get to and sailed calmly on.
really for this sermon, I feel like I should have a, a big screen and a pointer and all of you here. And so I could ask, so someone tell me about the story of the fall of Icarus, but I don't want to put too much pressure on Sabrina. And one of you would remember the Greek myth from childhood and you would remind us how Daedalus was the servant of King Minos in Greece. Daedalus, the great builder of the labyrinth, the one that held the Minotaur captive, and how Icarus was his son. And both essentially were held captive in this palace because Daedalus knew this important secret about the labyrinth and how to escape. But Daedalus wants to free them, especially his boy. So the great inventor and craftsman, he creates wings, architects wings for both of them, wings made of branches and wax and, and feathers so that they can fly from this place. And yes, the father warns the son about the weakness of his contraption, that the, max, the wax will melt if it comes too close to the hot sun. But his man-child perhaps enjoys humankind's first flight so much that he maybe forgets himself in the power and the rush of it all, or maybe he wants to just stretch his new wings as far as they will go, and who could blame him? So he makes the fatal mistake, and he flies way too close to the sun, close enough at least to melt the wax, and so the feathers drop away, and the boy drops too, to his death in the ocean. There is a painting of it that Auden had seen, the one that's on your order of service cover, the one I would have up here on the screen with the pointer. But look at it, it's funny to look at it. Icarus is a bit of a mystery in it. I mean, it's a, a landscape, really. Although since you and I are tipped off by the title, we, we probably would, we might look a little harder and there find eventually the boy in the lower right-hand corner of the canvas, white legs disappearing just beneath the water. In the poem that we read as our reading this morning, Auden speaks to another painting by Bruegel, The Census at Bethlehem, also conveniently located in your order of service. And if you were all here, why I'd ask, Census? Bethlehem? And you would tell the story that you've heard at a hundred Christmas Eves. The one maybe from the Gospel Luke of Luke, according to which we are told the governor of Syria, well, calls everyone for the first census, everyone to the town from which they were born or came or their people came to be counted. And so Joseph journeys from Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to the city of David called Bethlehem because he's from the house and line of David. But also everyone knows who's seen a nativity pageant that Joseph didn't travel alone. No, his very pregnant wife, Mary, came along too, riding a donkey. And you know the rest. When they arrive, there's no room in the inn because everybody's there for the census. 
And what follows is this magical night in the manger, this baby born. And the shepherds and the wise people with their gifts who show up guided by a star and something, something has shifted in the universe, something important that night. And this other painting in your order of service, I mean, it's supposed to be that scene, but if you look at it, it just looks like some scene from a a town, maybe in Holland, a long time ago. And it's only the title that makes you look maybe for something, for a Mary and Joseph, who maybe are this couple down at the bottom, heading somewhere toward the inn, I imagine. Clearly, there's some cultural appropriation going on, right? I mean, this definitely doesn't look like any Palestine I've ever seen, and ice skating isn't ever mentioned in the Bible. But looking closely, looking again, it doesn't seem like anybody notices that couple. There's no attention drawn to them in the painting. Does anyone in it seem to be drawn or taken by a strange sensation that something miraculous is about to happen? And it centers around these two strangers who've arrived back home. And for that matter, that painting of the boy falling from the sky, is anyone pointing? Does anyone look shocked? Or are people racing to get help for the boy who still might be saved? Nope. In both paintings, and in the third that Auden refers to, where martyrdom plays out its horrors in a town scene, there too the animals don't notice the awful slaughtering. Life goes on. In all these paintings, life goes on. Miracles are about to take place and people skate. Boys fall from the sky in mythically tragic moments and plowmen plow and shepherds herd and boats sail on. People martyred and the dogs scratch and itch against a tree. I remember the morning of 9-11 in New Jersey, in a commuter suburb of the city where I lived at the time. I was driving to work just before nine, just before the first tower was hit, and I was thinking, what a gorgeous fall day it was. It was a perfect day, I thought. I mean, the sky was clear blue and cloudless, and the sun was bright and strong, and it was this mixture of warm and cool that only early fall in the East Coast can be. And I marveled at all of this as the morning news droned on in the radio. It was, you might say, now, an Auden Broichel moment, right? Wasn't it? Maybe that's something you've experienced. How funny it can be, or not funny, but odd, or painful, or jarring at least, where there's this emotional and cognitive misfit in our experience and what's going on around us, 
where the world just moves on despite what happens to us. Have you ever felt that way? How the sun shines on your worst day. Prior to his trip to Brussels, where he wrote the poem that we read this morning, it's probably important to mention that Auden himself had just spent six months in China during the Second Sino-Japanese War and several weeks, weeks on the front line of the Spanish Civil War, places of great bloodshed and suffering. And one can imagine how maybe he felt upon returning that while wars waged on in Spain and China and Japan, all that suffering, his friends in England and America were likely having lovely, ordinary days of tea and crumpets and curled up reading novels. How everything turns away, the poet writes, quite leisurely from the disaster. And it's true, that feeling. The natural world and other people too can seemingly turn away from our great pain and our great joy too. I mean, the world doesn't notice the great miracles either that were about to happen in that snow in Bethlehem landscape that we saw, does it? And it got me thinking. It got me thinking how we humans need someone or more than someone to witness to our lives. It's a basic emotional, spiritual, human need to have the world not entirely turn away or be indifferent to what we are going through, the great and the awful. Someone to stand and witness with us. I was listening to a podcast the other day, and in it a man talked about June 2016, I think it was, when there was the shooting in the gay club, Pulse was the name of the club, in Florida. The night when 49 people were killed in the club and 53 wounded. All day, the man said, at work, no one asked him an out gay man, how he was doing, how the event hit him. But it must have been obvious that he wasn't himself. The hate and the hurt hit him hard, and I imagine probably in part because it resonated with a life of hate and hurt and threat that was part of his experience of being gay. And he said it wasn't until that night, until he went to a theater group that he was part of. I think it was a theater group. And this, this woman who he knew met him at the door as he came in and said, looked at him and said, how are you doing? In that tone of voice, in that way that told him that she knew that he might not be doing okay and why and how powerful it was to have someone see him and stand with him in his world or be willing to on that day. I mean, 
you and I, we don't live our lives for other people's opinions, or we should, we should try hard not to. We don't play baseball because of the fans, right? Or we probably shouldn't. We do it because we love the sport, to continue in that metaphor. We love it. We love the feeling. We play it because we, we love the feeling of the ball off the bat or that triple play that's completed with elegance and strength and precision or the fly ball that lands in the mitt with this hard, satisfying thud. We don't do what we do for the fans or to please other people, but but like the tree that falls in the woods, if you hit a gorgeous home run and no one is there to see it with you, the beauty and the power of it all, well, it does diminish the joy a little. It's partly that joys shared are indeed doubled, as the saying goes, and that sorrows shared are halved there's truth in that. It's just also that we weren't meant to play to an empty house, as the poet says. I mean, most of you, I'm sure, know that part of how babies, how we as babies came to know ourselves as a person, to learn that we were lovable, to grow confident in ourselves and our agency in the world was that mirroring that our parents did, right? We smile, they smile. We cry, they respond. And when they don't, if they don't, it thwarts our sense of self. It's so basic and it's so key. We all need someone who sees us. They don't have to fix us. And in fact, they probably shouldn't try. That's not how love works. They don't even need to have anything smart or wise to say, though sometimes it's nice if they do. But somehow, they're standing with us, even quietly, as we seek to hold what happens and delight in it or struggle with it. Well, it's vital. It's vital to our feeling alive and whole. I was thinking of that with respect to our campers who are with us, how often in middle school and high school, I don't know, how often things can be socially kind of brutal, unless things have changed <laughs> radically since I was there. And particularly for folks who are outside a norm or hiding something that they think makes them feel odd or unlovable, how particularly brutal those years can be. Suicides of trans teens, as I'm sure all of you know, is heartbreakingly high. Because they, like all of us, need allies to stand by them. And also folks to witness to the joy and struggle of their lives and the beauty and the resilience and the hardship of their story, just as we want desperately and need someone to witness to ours. This kind of witnessing, it's an incredible ministry that we can offer our entire lives. 
It's living our belief in the worth and dignity of all people, one of our principles. It's living our commitment to one another's spiritual growth, another of our principles. It's a gift we can offer to other people. And it doesn't take any special training to just begin to do it. It just takes attention, doesn't it? The listening of the kind that Bernie Glassman talked about in that reading that Carmen and Alex share with people at the beginning of every Faithful Fools retreat. It involves standing with someone and looking in the same direction they are, not to fix it, not to have that brilliant wisdom, but just to be in it with them for a moment. You just have to notice, like that woman in the theater door, you just have to notice, I wonder how he must be feeling this day with that awful, hateful killing and being a gay man in this world today. And then all you have to do is say, how are you doing today? The refrain just has to be that we hear one another and we see each other, that's all. I think if we learn to live our lives more and more leaning into this way of being in relation and connection to each other, I, I think and believe that those connections we have in the world will deepen and expand. I have no doubt that we will find ourselves, as Carmen references, speaking up and engaging more and more in compassionate action. Because the more you see people and understand what they're going through, the more you love them, the more you can't stand by when they're being hurt by the world, right? I have no doubt that you and I will be and are already being deepened in those ways by reaching out to one another and witnessing each other's lives. And also, I imagine living this way, we will find and foster incredible friendships. David White, the poet, who sometimes leads workshops in this church, he wrote something that I want to thank Mary Gans for sending to me. He wrote, the ultimate touchstone of friendship is witness. The privilege of having been seen by someone and the equal privilege of being granted the sight of the essence of another to have walked with them and to have believed in them and sometimes just to have accompanied them for however brief a span on a journey impossible to accomplish alone. That journey that is impossible to accomplish alone is life. For as the poet Annie Dillard said, we are here to abet creation and to witness to it. To notice each other's beautiful face and complex nature so that creation need not play to an empty house. Because, my friends, it was never meant to. We were never meant to. So may we witness well to one another's lives and be blessed by doing so. Amen.
now, my friends, in our comings and our goings, may the light of love shine upon us. Out from within us, be gracious unto us and grant us peace. For this is the day we are given. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Amen.